Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, not Jared Lee. <laughs> it's pretty good. I give you full credit for... Practicing in the mirror this morning. Yeah, I think I think it was quite good. I think Jared goes a bit deeper, actually. If you, yeah, if you're Hello, for, and welcome to the... That's too uh, deep. That was worth a try. Anyway, we are here. Cordy is joining us on the show for the first time uh, in Jared's... I guess, noticeable absence, unfortunately, despite our best accent efforts. You've got me, Ben Rose, as usual, and we're doing something a bit special whilst we're here on the road in Munich. We are indeed. So I will be asking Ben some questions that we received the last time we put out a request uh, for, for a an AMA episode, and we received so many questions that we're still trying to get through them. We have a backlog. So, Ben... First question, are you ready? I don't know. I'd actually like to ask you a question first because Ooh. what does AMA stand for? That stands for Ask Me Anything. Brilliant. There we are. <laughs> Our first non-insurance ac acronym. This is what happens <laughs> when you bring in <laughs> someone new. For, for the listeners' benefits, if you haven't been joining us regularly on the Reinsurance Podcast, Cordy normally sits next to us holding up a whiteboard, telling us what to do, uh, giving us strict instructions and helping us procure the services of hair and makeup providers before the show. I'm kidding, we don't do hair and makeup. Um, but over to you, Cody. You are the question master today. All right. So Ben, first question. Are you ready? You've had no prep for this. Uh, yeah, I don't know any of the questions he's going to ask, so this could be dangerous, but we'll find out. Why do reinsurance renewals fall on significant dates, such as 1-1, 1-4, one six and so on. It's a good question, and I, I think it's it's actually interesting because it's not the same for everyone, you know. And it, it's actually it's common that most renewals in a particular region will happen at the same time. I but actually, although we have one one, for example, the first of January, a lot of companies in the same region, I with similar business mixes, will actually do their deal in one twelve or one eleven. It just so happens that the majority have sort of gravitated over time towards some of these key dates like the 1st of January. I think the reason that these particular periods exist, so the 1st of Jan, the 1st of April, uh, in Asia, the 1st of June or July in Florida, they've tried to be geared a bit towards when they think disasters will happen uh, and also to tie in with financial years. So for example, in Florida, you're ideally positioned just before hurricane season starts if you can get your deal done in advance of that in the summer. What's the conspiracy version of why reinsurance renewals fall on these dates? Uh, oh, if only I could tell you about my own calendars and things that say that a very important deal shall be struck on 1-1-2023. We'll see. It might be a bit late. Okay. Question number two. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. If you never fell into reinsurance, what do you imagine you'd be doing now? Ooh. This is interesting because Jared's not here, and I, I think he would have had an interesting answer as well. I, for me, I actually studied music a long time ago. I maybe I'd still be figuring out a way to make any kind of income from <laughs> from music. So I think what I wanted to do in that world was actually to write music and to compose. I and it's something that I felt one was not something that could be converted into rent money very easily, but also two something that you had to really spend a long time doing to get any good at it. So I expected to peak, you know, as a composer age 50 or 60. So I thought, let's do a startup and uh, 
maybe that will give me the funds needed to eventually one day become an older grey composer instead. Why is reinsurance interesting? I put my glass down heavily then for emphasis. What, what a profound question. Uh, reinsurance is fascinating because it's instantly meta from the beginning in the sense that it's a thing of a thing. Uh, so we're not just talking about insurance, we're talking about insurance of insurance. And then quickly when people hear about reinsurance, they realize, wait, does that mean you can have reinsurance of reinsurance as well? And they discover retrocession and it's this mirror in a mirror sort of thing where they realize that this product, this coverage, this protection uh, that exists is not a binary where the insureds and out there are the insurers actually it's much more interesting than that there's all sorts of flows of capital surrounding the accommodation of the risks that emerge on an individual level but also in a commercial societal level and those risks have to be paid for in some way and protected for and accounted for and the system that provides for that is a fascinating beast that never ceases to amaze listeners of the reinsurance podcast Indeed. I found that generally you don't go more than one level deep if you're at parties when explaining reinsurance or, or you don't get invited back. <laughs> that is the danger. Why has it taken so long for a platform to emerge that exclusively facilitates reinsurance? Because when I first joined Superseed, I was blown away at the lack of technological advancement compared to other industries, especially coming from uh, B2B tech. And when you say advancement, you mean lack thereof, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Most other industries don't tend to rely still on spreadsheets, email, and those horrible FTP sites. Yeah, I, I think there's something in the, the general pattern of business, which is quite inherent, uh, which, is, which is very valuable in itself, but the role of the industry is to be stable and to be sustainable. The, the main thing you do in reinsurance is renewals, re, i.e. repeats of a previous year. So, you know, every, almost every deal that's done in reinsurance is done with at least a, some likelihood that that deal will be done again the next year. And they tend to have this annual coverage. And so when your practitioners, you know, focus their role around curating rather than creating and changing, it's, it's not typically lended itself towards a, a more disruptive, innovative, uh, proactively changing uh, industry. I, certainly we've done very well to evolve to the needs of clients over time. There's still a lot of room to grow. But as we think about ourselves, you know, our, our job is just to repeat and repeat and repeat each year these same deals and variations of those deals from now until the rest of time. And actually the, the world depends on us to keep on doing that. I, I think it's taken, you know, the very, uh, very, very visible world around us, conspicuous, that's the word I was looking for, the very conspicuous world around us changing so much that practitioners from within have started to, you know, ask why, why isn't ours like that? You know, why, why don't we use the internet for anything? Why don't we share things digitally or record data in this way? I think it's taken the thrust of technology into our personal daily lives to give us enough question and pause for thought as to 
is there actually a better way of doing things than to continue doing what we've done for the last 300 years? Uh, and I don't think that question has a binary answer again. I don't think it's a case of throw out everything you've been doing for the last 300 years and get a computer to do it instead. Not at all. I think that would ruin the best parts that have been carefully refined over that time. It's, it's much more a question of how could we enhance I, those very carefully wrought processes through the help of digital technology. And just to confirm, spreadsheets have not been around for the last 300 years. But they have for more than the last 30, which is really interesting. Yeah, and we're still using them daily. Yeah. The stresses are still there. Whenever I mention them to any reinsurance practitioner, I can see part of their soul die beneath their eyes. Yeah. Never a fun experience. But then you introduce supersedes, and it's, oh, what does this do? The supersede is the resurrection. You know, we're, we're basically looking to give industry practitioners their lives and their, uh, their time back because nowadays we, you know, we, we, we didn't produce what we've produced in a, in a vacuum. It's been very much built through conversations with practitioners. Do you have as much time as you'd like to do these activities? Are there any activities you wish you didn't have to do? And typically they come back saying, actually, I really want to be spending more time with my clients building relationships, designing structures, testing as-if scenarios, doing all sorts of cool analyses, figuring out how inflation is going to make a difference to my portfolio, all these great things they'd love to do. But they say, but we can't because I have to spend 70 to 80% of my daily work just manipulating data in spreadsheets. And so if I was to say, what is the main benefit you know, of adopting a reinsurance-specific platform for this it's just to take away all of the pain of those manual processes because they are repetitive and because they're repetitive, they can be automated as long as it's done very carefully with an actuarially kind of approved mindset and the skills that make it precise enough to the reinsurance processes involved. Something that comes to mind when you talk about solving problems, a lot of, um, a lot of cases that you've spoken to uh, to clients about and potential clients are the edge cases that their current technology can't solve for. Have you got any examples of those? Yeah, I mean, one of the most classic things, which is, is really straightforward, is, is any companies that write high-volume business uh, hit the spreadsheet million-row limit very quickly. A million rows. Yeah, I would think people easily surpass that, especially if you're doing... No, no, that was my soul dying. I <laughs> see. <laughs> Um, yeah, but but you know companies go past that all all the time, and with with Excel that means you end up in this weird scenario of trying to stitch spreadsheets together. So you're in this position of being like, okay, well these policy records go from here to here, or these losses go from here to here, and then the second spreadsheet has this subsection of of those those inputs, and and really what practitioners need is a single place where they can see all of that information at once a platform that allows them to aggregate all of that information so it can be cut and sliced and diced and turned into useful exhibits such as profiles very very easily at the touch of a button so what it sounds like is instead of you having to work with 15 different spreadsheets is that a, does that sound like a reasonable number that an underwriter or a seeded reading would have to work with less more 
I, I think some some firms have released kind of comments internally about like the hundreds of spreadsheets that are used even by small teams. On any given deal, it's probably more like five or six different sheets that you might end up using. But I this is partly why we introduced our upload capabilities at Superseed, where you can just drag in multiple spreadsheets at once and it recognizes them and combines them all into single records. Super convenient. Indeed. Rather than having to work with all these different files, I can upload everything into one platform and now I can play with the data. And build anything you want with it. Yeah, we're in the 21st century. Oh, exactly. This is how, how things should work. So my next question is, why should companies within reinsurance trust supersede with their data? Well, this is the funny thing. I think we we do have a lot of uh, initial reactions from people who've been in the industry a long time to say, oh, but surely we can't entrust our data to leave our organization. But the reality is at the moment, they send the same data that they would put on supersede to the market via email, which is madness. You know, they, they, they're sending a very, very sensitive information, commercially sensitive information out to the market as attachments uh, to emails, which is much more vulnerable than using a secure platform instead. I, at Superseed, we do uh, literally <laughs> record-breaking kind of amounts of security. We benchmark ourselves against all of the main insurance and reinsurance uh, vendors and so on for technology, and we're uh, up there in the gods with A++ and so on. Uh, and we also do our ISO 27001 information security certification. I've done it for the last three years running, so basically the company's entire life and last year we came out of it with a perfect score. Uh, so we set the bar very high from a security perspective, which interestingly is actually higher than most internal uh, large corporates and insurance companies are able to do themselves just due to their own complexity. So the reality is actually if you trust your data with supersede, it's probably safer than it would be kept inside your own organization. And just, for, just to contextualize the ISO 27001, that's the gold standard for security practices uh, and we have it. One other thing I wanted to ask actually, um, how many times have you received information when working as an underwriter that you shouldn't have received? I, only a couple. I don't, I don't want to exaggerate that one. I, th I think it happened, you know, across a portfolio of about 300 deals, you know, like in four or five of them, there'd be stuff that felt a bit unfinished or had annotations that shouldn't have been included. Uh, I know I've mentioned previously the one that was the worst, which literally said to be removed before, you know, an underwriter sees this or don't, don't show it to the underwriters. But otherwise, typically it's just this, the sheer volume of data that's included in these exhibits sometimes means that things like uh, columns get uh, hidden, uh, but they don't get removed, or comments get added to cells, but the comments don't get removed uh, because there isn't this effective proofreading process there's just too much data for people to grapple with too many spreadsheets with too many sheets inside them uh, it makes it impossible for a human to manually verify and review all the information that's inside them and to check that your annotations i uh, especially where annotations typically mean there's a concern uh, to check that those have been actioned or removed imagine if there was a place where you could upload all of that data rather than use multiple spreadsheets one can only hope. Exactly. 
What are toughest challenges for reinsurance underwriters today? That's interesting. I mean, today, arguably, it's not so much about the underwriters as their corporations. They, the underwriters, I guess, are the ones with something to prove here because capital isn't as inexpensive as it once was. So out there in the investor markets, there are a number of uh, entities that choose to entrust their capital to various other entities that provide reinsurance. And because they're invested in, they're able to employ underwriters and actuaries and so on and convert that capital into hopefully a bigger pile of capital at the end after you know, assessing risk and providing coverage in, in, in place of that risk for their various clients. Um, why do I talk about it like this? I think it's because whereas in the past, uh, reinsurance underwriters have been able to maybe do, do quite well in, in some years and less well in others, I and sort of blame it on when, whether the wind blew or not. I, there's all the more pressure at the moment to prove that reinsurance is a valuable exercise in the first place. I particularly because one, the capital, as I mentioned, is less willing and able to participate. They need to be really convinced uh, that the reinsurance underwriters are going to be able to generate a, turn, a return. And two, because there's more uncertainty globally. I in terms of all risks, we have not only the backdrop of, you know, an ever more urbanized population, but also uh, man-made risks that come with that. So human-made risks such as war that we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment and all of the knock-on impacts of that, but also a growing frequency and severity of natural, natural catastrophes as a result of climate change, which finally is getting acknowledged, but with the result that most people are realizing how little they know about or can account for the risks that it brings. So what's the most difficult things for, for underwriters right now? It's, it's how do you make a case that the business you're writing is good and that it's worth providing capital for and that you're going to generate a return at the end. What makes it even more difficult, therefore, is having the data to back up your underwriting decisions, which at the moment isn't there because students are providing such terrible data to them. Not because they're terrible, but because they don't have the necessary tools to be able to provide that data which we're trying to help with well said <laughs> <laughs> um on the back of that actually so you've identified the challenges that underwriters have how at least when you were an underwriter how was success defined so this is a challenging question for any management team i you have two main types of business and reinsurance. Uh, for newer listeners, you have short-tail business and long-tail business. Short-tail business typically refers to classes of business that you find out whether you've made a profit or a loss very quickly. Uh, there is not a very long tail on discovering losses. Uh, so examples are normally like catastrophe business. Was there a hurricane? Was there an earthquake? I long-tail business by contrast typically accounts for the very lengthy delay uh, that's involved in working out whether and how much of a loss has been incurred uh, so anything like a, a class action lawsuit uh, takes a very long time i think usually about seven years to get through the courts to determine whether there is a loss at all and the magnitude of that loss um, so if you're a long-tail underwriter then 
management doesn't know whether you did a good job until seven years later. <laughs> if you're a short-tail underwriter, on the other hand, management isn't sure if you did a good job or not because, you know, at the end of the day, nobody could have predicted that hurricane, right? And they happen from time to time. So even if you had a bad year, it might just have been because of the hurricane. So what this creates is a, a very difficult position for managers to try and work out whether their underwriters are doing well or not. Um, the more that they're able to gather data on how they are performing, how their customers' portfolios are performing, how their peers' portfolios are performing, uh, the more effectively they can assess that. Because if it's a you know a market impacting event, typically most firms will be on similar events, will be affected by similar events, whether they're short tail or long tail. Uh, so as a result, um, everybody has the same conditions to operate within. So you should be able to see some who are loss picking more effectively than others as part of that. Uh, so analysis, data, peer review, that's, that's sort of your best hope so of assessing an underwriter's performance. Key takeaway, if you're a bad underwriter, get into long tail risk and leave your job every six years. Mm -hmm. You're not telling anyone anything they don't know already. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, we're gonna we're moving on to the last question. What's the most complicated reinsurance deal you've ever seen? So, this is a good question. I, I think if you think about complexity in reinsurance deals, there are typically two main directions vertically and horizontally, in which they can add complexity. So upwards, we're normally talking about the addition of layers. So you might see some uh, excessive loss treaties that have, you know, layer one, which covers up to a certain amount, layer two, that then picks up the next section of exposure. You know, the loss gets increasingly more severe. You add more and more layers to protect in case that happens. Um, I think you get to the most complex scenarios when you have that in the background uh, and then also things happening sideways as well. So some of those layers start to have uh, a sharing arrangement, uh, like a quota share or similar, such that they're split between you and the insurer in a different way than just excess of a given loss point. Um, and that can be made even more complex. Again, I can just carry on adding extra things here please do by adding uh, specific restrictions or perils to layers or in some cases parts of the portfolio that only are covered by particular layers uh, it's not uncommon for whole account deals or composite deals for example to have different pillars where you can effectively say you know you're covered if any one of these three different portfolios has a loss in excess of x um, but not covered if more than one does. So you have a, a sort of uh, strange products like that created. You also then have sideways sharing with uh, government schemes and things as well. So in some cases, huge portions of what would be a, quite a straightforward tower of layers are carved out for uh, a, a scheme, like uh, the Florida Hurricane Catastrophe Fund as an example, uh, or alternatively carved out for private layers that are taken up by a mixture of uh, private reinsurers on alternative terms, uh, funds, internal reinsurers, uh, meaning that the the resulting appearance of the deal 
gets very challenging to represent because as a sedent, obviously you want to see all of this. A broker might only be placing part of that deal. So a broker might have layers one to three or something of this crazy structure, but they've only got an order to place 60% of the first two layers and 10% of the third layer, in which case they might not have access to all of the information about the rest of the arrangement. And then on top of that as well, when you get to the reinsurer, there might be a reinsurer that only sees one small piece of this because that's all the student or the broker wants to share with them. Or that's the only part of their exposure they're willing to put with a reinsurer of that rating or location or whatever it might be. Um, so the result is, is that the reinsurers need to be very carefully given a fragment of these ultra complex programs and be asked to reinsure it. I confident that they're not missing any anything important. An additional layer of complexity is added by the fact that these programs often inure is the word we use uh, to one another. So you have to know where there's the potential for being covered more than once. Let's say you know program A covers a portfolio and program B also covers a portfolio. Uh, you need to know whether if you start having losses or we need to recover from losses, do you ask program A first before you go to B? Do you have to ask them at the same time? Do you ask B first? Uh, and that type of macro structure can get very complicated as well. So I think in summary, <laughs> reinsurance is very complicated, very bespoke. And I think to your earliest question in this conversation as to why it's taken so long for a reinsurance specific platform to emerge. That was going to be my next question. That is a big part of it. Most technology hasn't been flexible enough to accommodate this sort of thing before. I think it just gets very, very messy when you're trying to accommodate all of the nuances of reinsurance. I, and you need to be building with the practitioners to have a hope of standing a, a chance, I think. When you, were, when you were an underwriter, did you see any technology platforms try and come in and attempt to build something that would handle the complexities of these different towers and, and reinsurance programs? Because I know you were at Lloyd's for a little while. Yeah, so, so, so when I was uh, in the market, I think I was encouraged to see uh, some platforms emerging which sought to capture at least some elements of deals. Uh, again, not necessarily with the full flexibility. So you had people coding things in fields because they had to, because it's a mandatory field, but it didn't actually make sense because in this case for a given deal, that field didn't apply. So you just set it to zero or 9,999, etc. cetera, um, depending on what the, the field was. If it was an unlimited limits, for example, do exist, but typically systems fall down on them. Or if you've got complicated things like reinstatements or sections and subsections, a lot of, a lot of systems can't cater for that. But I was encouraged to see brokers building their systems. So some of the largest brokers built uh, placement platforms. Uh, Lloyd's, of course, helped fund a revival and, and rebuilding of a placement platform uh, for the London market. At the same time, as much as it was great to see this energy and enthusiasm uh, around those platforms, they were always built with a very limited accessibility, uh, which challenges them, I think, from, from day one in terms of what they can really achieve for the industry. Because if you build a big platform as a broker, 
It's great for that broker, but a pain for everybody else because nobody works with just one broker. If you build a platform just for the London market, it's great for people who exclusively work in the London market. Very few people work exclusively with the London market. So in each case, you create duplication that the technology is actually supposed to be helping to avoid because you're having to do a deal on more than one platform at once. Ideally, you need something which is omni-broker, omni-reinsurer, uh, omni-regional. You, you can use it in any kind of circumstance. I, and something, again, that has the flexibility to deal with any kind of reinsurance deal. Does there exist such a platform, Ben? <laughs> Go to www.superseed.com <laughs> to find out more. And I think on that note, we will end this podcast. Thank you, Cordy, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Paul step in for Jared, but <laughs> the accent was good. <laughs> See you next time, folks. Thanks, guys.